0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to How We Work, a podcast about the very real and very human dynamics that shape the way we work. I'm your host, Dr. Misha Ann Martin, and I am the Senior Director of People Analytics and Research at Work Human. This week, y'all, we're live in Atlanta. I'm so excited. We're at Work Human Live, and I am joined by one of the featured speakers at Work Human Live this year. Y'all, this one is going to be a treat. She is the Global Head of Culture and Inclusion at Wayfair, one of Fortune's 40 Under 40. Please welcome the lovely, well-dressed, by the way. Y'all can't see that, but she is fly. The fly, (laughs) the amazing Kiana Schmidl.
1: Woo, quite an introduction. I mean, Dr. Misha Ann, you're sitting across (laughs) equal flyness. I would say there's an equality of flyness happening in this conversation.
0: I'm glad my fly matches your fly. (laughs) 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 All right, so let's get into it. You joined Wayfair at the end of 2019 as global head of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Six months after that, George Floyd is murdered. There are demonstrations and protests against systemic racism and oppression all around the world, not just in the US. And conversations about the black experience start making their way into the workplace with an urgency we've never seen before. All of a sudden, now everybody wanted to understand what it was like to be black, right? So when you started, before all of this happened, what were your goals? And then how did they evolve or accelerate over the last two years?
1: Yeah, you just brought me way back to a challenging and traumatic time. So while I work through that with my therapist in my head, what I would say is when I started, my goals are always simple. My goals are to build a culture of inclusion no matter where I am. And with that being the goal, the way that you go about building a culture of inclusion looks different than historically how DEI work has been done in the past. Mm -hmm. So if we think about the evolution of DEI work, a lot of times we think about evolving from equal employment opportunities and compliance Uh metrics and data reporting on representation Mm -hmm. to recruiting and hiring. Mm -hmm. And that's typically the lever that people pull all the time, right? Is how do we get more folks who look like, or check X box here. And for me in my first year there, I told them, I will not be setting recruiting and hiring goals. I will not look to partner with TA to say, this is how many we need of X for you all to bring in.
0: That is bold.
1: And it was purposeful because for me, I need to understand what's going on in our culture that is working for or against certain Mm -hmm. groups and populations that then says the experience that you have here is different from the experience that we would like for you to have. And that's what I need to work on fixing so that then when we pull the lever to say and bringing in more folks, we're not just sending them right through the same turnstile of and you have a bad experience and then you leave because Mm -hmm. then what is the point? I don't believe in doing pointless work. That is... Is very frustrating to me. And so for me, it was, we need to get in on this culture work. I need to understand what our culture is and how it's working for folks who don't look like the majority.
0: Yeah. I so love that you said that because I am passionate about being a data person, right? I'm passionate about diagnosis being the beginning of this work, understanding what ails that particular organization and coming up with specific strategies to address that. Okay. So Wayfair released its first DEI report in 2021, and I'm guessing that some of what made its way into the report was a result of some of this diagnosis that you're talking about. So one of the things that was in that report was that women of color were underrepresented at the company, as they are in tech in general, and they made up only 8% of its more than 16,000 employees hiring better, hiring with an equity lens, as described by Brittany H&A, she loves talking about equity lens. We'll get into that in another podcast. <laughs> this has been a direct focus for you and your team. Can you tell us, right, so I'm assuming you got to the hiring process after all the cultural diagnosis, but can you tell us a little bit about the transformation of that hiring process and what you have found to be successful in finding and recruiting a more diverse talent pool?
1: Sure. So I think a few different things. I think data is important. I think what I get frustrated by is that typically when most folks say data, they only think of quantitative data. Mm -hmm. And to me, you cannot tell a story with quantitative data. And people don't leave or join a company because of numbers. They leave or join a company because of the story or their experience, right? Yeah. So one of the things that I did do early on, was develop a DEI dashboard. Mm-hmm. And so across recruiting and hiring, every step of the funnel from top of funnel, whether you applied or there was outreach through who gets hired to identify what some of those patterns are, mm-hmm. right? Did the same thing for our engagement survey scores, as well as performance reviews, time and role time to promote, which makes up our career development box, and then our attrition rates. And so as you look at all of that, all of that can then be dissected by the dimension of diversity or intersectionality that we have self-reported data Mm for. On top of that, we had built toolkits that say, if things aren't going well in any of these areas, here are some ways for you to think about implementing initiatives, pausing or stopping certain work and instituting other processes that will make your team more inclusive. Mm -hmm. But then saying, my team can't be the only one with access to that information. It has to be all of our associate directors, people managers, like what's the level Mm -hmm. of Employee that were comfortable with accessing that data and that information. So we got it to the associate director level. What that did was it opened up the conversation in a way that meant I'm not driving the discussion of why in the business case mm-hmm. and where are we getting it wrong and where are we getting it right. All of those folks can drive that discussion. So then when we're talking about the recruiting and hiring, they're in it with me because they see the patterns that are happening on their team and they become a partner in that change. So in addition to our hiring managers know, they go through the certified interview process, they understand the goals that we're trying to achieve and where they have work to do to build a culture of inclusion on their team. Then working with TA to say, okay, here's how we think about holistically building relationships with whether it's organizations or individuals who are not the typical profile that we go after. Mm -hmm. What are the criteria that we're looking for and how do we get more objective in our job descriptions? So the other half of my work, if you will, although I believe they're intricately related, is culture work. Mm -hmm. And so part of what I did at the beginning of 2020 was to launch these new people principles, and they became the basis for how we hire, inspire, assess, and develop our people. Mm -hmm. And in that hire piece, it's tying everything back to those principles. We want Mm -hmm. folks who collaborate effectively. We want people who respect others. We want people who use good judgment and Mm -hmm. so on. And so if we're using those as the basis for who we're hiring, then it shouldn't matter where you went to school or where your former employer is or what your background is, it should matter that you can give me examples of defaulting to collaboration. Mm -hmm. You can tell me about a time where you used good judgment and maybe that included leveraging data in some Mm -hmm. way. You can give me all of these examples that meet the criteria for what we want you to do while you're here, as opposed to me assessing you based on, well, if you worked there, then you must have. And then I start filling in all these bias blanks. Okay. Okay.
0: So can we talk a little bit then about how exactly you measure progress within that framework? So I know you developed a DEI maturity matrix to help with that. And so I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about it, like what it is, how you developed it, what are the inputs that
1: determine progress? Sure. So if we go back to when I started, I mentioned the DEI dashboards, but also the other thing I did was I had conversations with people, Mm -hmm. people at different levels of the organization, people in different locations. And Just wanted to have a conversation with them about their experience and their perceived experience of folks who are not like them. And boiled all of that kind of qualitative analysis down and layered it over the data to say, okay, here are the areas I think we need to focus. We need to focus on leadership commitment and accountability. Mm -hmm. We need to focus on building the infrastructure to support a culture of inclusion We need to focus on education and awareness Mm -hmm. and we need to focus on what does it mean to build community? So whether that's employee resource groups or whatever it is. So then from there, that informed the DEI maturity matrix. So if these are our numbers, the quantitative data, if this is the experience, the qualitative data that we have, and these are our key focus areas, how do I random employee Mm -hmm. in a warehouse know what's going on? Or if I'm sitting in the tech space how do I know what's going on and if we're making progress on Mm -hmm. this work? So for me, the goal was to create a tool that's simple enough that anybody can look at it and do just a personalized assessment of like, where's my team? Mm -hmm. Where's our department? Where's the company at on this journey? So the DEI maturity matrix is broken out into two parts. One is leadership behaviors Mm -hmm. and then the other is cultural artifacts. And so it moves from a space of being reactive All the way to a space of being sustainable and so through there getting to proactivity and a transformational space. And the goal there is to be able to say, okay, at each of these four touch points, what are the artifacts in our culture that I see changing that let me know Mm -hmm. that we're becoming more inclusive? What are the behaviors that I'm seeing our leaders either develop or showcase more, Mm -hmm. or I'm seeing that when our leaders don't demonstrate these behaviors, there's actually a consequence for that that lets me know that our organization is getting more inclusive. And then putting that out there for folks to say at a high level take Mm -hmm. a look at this. Where do you think we're at? Because it matters less if I tell you in a report once a year, it Mm -hmm. matters more that you can check in on these things and that you have context for when I tell you, okay, so now we're working on the leadership inclusivity score. Mm -hmm. And that as part of our engagement survey, there's a team inclusivity score that helps us to break down and analyze some of the responses to our inclusion questions. Then you have context for, okay, this is another cultural artifact that exists. These are the expectations of our leaders, and I should see this behavior now. And so if I'm not seeing it, then I know that we're still reactive. Mm-hmm. I'm still talking about the business case. Or, no, we've gotten proactive. I'm not talking about the business case. What we're talking about is how and moving forward. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really important to say, like, let's not overcomplicate helping folks to themselves look at those lines of demarcation to say where we're at, mm-hmm. and let me worry about on the back end all of the metrics that we're pulling together to assess mm-hmm. you know, a little bit more finitely and how far do we still have to go. Yeah, so I know
0: from talking to you that you communicate out about progress in this area very often and to every level of the organization this radical transparency approach is really different. So can you talk about it a little bit, like how you communicate progress out to the organization? What made you decide on this radical transparency approach and how on earth, please tell us, please tell us (laughs) how you got buy-in from your leadership for that?
1: Yeah, what I would say is early in my career prior to Wayfair, but definitely in the DEI space, I am a Taurus. (laughs) <laughs> so I am I am very persistent. I'm very determined. And I was like, all right, you got to find the person speaking the loudest against what you're trying to do. And you turn them because then they'll be your biggest promoter and yeah. blah, blah, blah. And now that I'm older, I'm like, that is exhausting. <laughs> and like time frame for switching is unknown. So I default to... When I share this out, who are the people getting immediately excited? Okay. And I do that with the leadership as well, Hmm. because I want to spend time ensuring that you are on my side, no matter how bold I get. Okay. Because then in those rooms where I'm not, you're going to do a lot of the convincing and you're going to do a lot of the back and forth arguing so that I don't get tired out about it. And so... I will tell you all this. On my first day, there was a leader who came to orientation to just give the culture talk. And so, of course, I'm interested in this space. So I'm raising my hand. I'm asking these questions. And he was like, wow, these are amazing questions. And I don't know. And I was like, I love your honesty. It makes me a little nervous that you don't know, though. And he came over to talk to me afterwards. And he was like, I feel like I should know the answers to those questions. I want to know the answers to those questions. And I want to work with you. So, help me to understand. Can you say a little bit more about those questions? Can you help? And then I can put you in touch with the right people, but I want to be part of those conversations because this feels important. The second thing that he said to me was Hey, Way Black reached out to me and they wanted me to help advise them as they are trying to mature their employee resource group. I know it's only your first day, but do you think I should do it? Your first day. It was my first day. (laughs) And he was like, and I'm questioning this, not because I don't believe in them, but because I'm a white guy. And is that my place? And I said to him, you absolutely should do it, especially because you're a white guy. It's going to teach you about servant leadership. Mm-hmm. It's going to teach you true advocacy on behalf of others because you have to listen to them first. Mm-hmm. And that's not a position you're used to being in. Yeah, And he became the biggest, most outspoken person when we were talking about things for the performance equity task force and needing to get the bias analyzer tool out to everybody in the company, which meant telling everybody in the company, we could have bias in our performance reviews. We don't know. We need you to use this tool so that we can understand What's going on here in our own language that we're using, so that we can then tell you here's how you change it. Mm -hmm. He was the one championing all of these things, in addition to my leader in HR, but he didn't sit in the HR space. And so people didn't expect him to speak up on these things. And what's awesome is that he's also one of the leaders who has been at Wayfair the longest. He's been there like 15 years. Wow. So he carries a lot of influence. And he has helped to drive so much of this work along with our leader in the HR space, that it has made it much easier for me to be able to do that. But also he has brought along the folks who are taking a little bit longer to truly understand what it is that we're trying to do or what we're saying because they haven't spent much time with the work. And so it's also interesting because now, as I had previously mentioned before we started recording... Our former CPO is now going to become our chief financial officer and chief administrative officer. But that same guy from my day one is now going to be our new chief people officer. Wow. Okay. And so for me, it's awesome. It's also a little bit terrifying because it's like <laughs> inviting a friend over to your house and being like, they're going to judge all my stuff. <laughs> But knowing that we have these relationships with different leaders across the company, that we weren't just focusing on HR. Another great leader who has really helped to champion this work was in the marketing space and had marketing create their inclusive marketing strategy that we talked about in our first DEI report. These are all the folks who right away got on board Mm -hmm. and then helped to get their peers on board as well so that I'm not doing the heavy lifting on my own.
0: Amazing. I have all the questions. Okay, so... (laughs) you mentioned this bias analyzer tool. Can you tell us the story about that? You know, what made you realize you needed it? What is it? How is it working?
1: So let me start off by saying shout out to everybody in data and people analytics. You all are my best friends (laughs) because I get into the numbers and the analysis and I'm like all the possibilities and my brain does the Malcolm Gladwell and you folks are like, actually a narrower list of possibilities. Mm -hmm. Very helpful. So I was meeting with one of our folks in people analytics, and he had run a sprint on his own off of the side of his desk to do natural language process on our performance reviews Mm -hmm. and specifically on the dimensions of gender and -hmm. looking at gender in the binary at that time. And so he said, When I ran this analysis, I found that there is a word that comes up more often for women. So at a statistically significant differential for women than it does for men in their opportunity areas in performance reviews. And that word was confidence. And he said that. And I was like, do you know what we can do with this information and I like big hands everything like was losing my mind y'all need to know
0: the big hands are happening (laughs) right now really I'm like
1: I can't contain (laughs) it so as soon as he said that I was like we need to get this into so for our performance process we have calibration right Mm -hmm. where you go in and you talk about employees in addition to their written performance reviews and so I was like okay ahead of this performance cycle we need to let people know about this word and why it is problematic. Mm -hmm. It is problematic because it is subjective. The challenge with bias is that it is very subjective. Yep. Right? So if confidence is coming up so often for women, what do we mean by confidence? That means something different for me than it does for you. And so it's subjective to the person who's writing it. So one, how do we make it more objective? Mm -hmm. And then two, once it is more objective, maybe it's, you say, um, a lot in your presentations. And if you could remove that, you would sound more confident. Okay, but is that in some way negatively impacting business outcomes, team dynamics, some other metric that is important to us? And if it's not, then isn't this just a coaching opportunity? Mm-hmm. Should it be something that then takes away from their contributions? Mm-hmm. And those were the conversations that we were having. So we trained folks in HR who sit in as bias monitors for calibration. I love that. We, listen, you gotta have them. And then we also (laughs) trained the calibration facilitators to say, if you hear the word confidence, you need to pause the conversation and just probe, right? Mm -hmm. Ask questions. Can you say more about that? Can you get a little bit more specific? What exactly do you mean by that? And in one performance cycle, so literally found this word, implement these actions for the first performance cycle. And in that performance cycle, we saw for the first time ratings flip where women were rated higher on average than men. Stop it. For the first time. And that has sustained every cycle since we implemented that. So we know that it matters, the words that we are using that, in this case, it's not specific to Wayfair, so check your organizations. However, mm-hmm. it's based on how we're talking at Wayfair. And that's the critical piece is language might take on its own hue from the culture of your organization. And so, when we ran this again around race and ethnicity, unfortunately, we didn't come down to just one word. It was a list of words and phrases that was were aggressive, differentiated. One of them. aggressive was certainly one of them. And when you look at intersectionality, aggressive came up for one gender more Mm. than another. I'm not going to say who that is, but folks in the back, you can take a guess. So for us, the struggle was it's easy to tell people a word Mm -hmm. and have them think I need to flag that. It is much harder to say, can you remember this list of words or these phrases, Mm -hmm. especially when some of them seem innocuous. Oh, that's the thing. And so for us, it was, how are we going to solve for X? And what's amazing is, again, this like crowdsourcing solutions. I think Cy Wakeman refers to it as the collective genius, Mm -hmm. right? But it's this sense of we don't have to solve all of these challenges on our own. And for me, humility and transparency are key components of me as a leader, but Mm -hmm. also of DEI work. And so we started telling people this story and we were like, and we came up with these words and these phrases and we're looking for ways to get it out to you to make it more accessible. But here's the solution we have thus far. And it was literally like, go to this Google doc and look at the words and phrases. Mm -hmm. And one of our engineers reached out and said, I think I can build a bot off the side of my desk. It will just ingest your words, but I need the if flagged, then what? Mm -hmm. And I was like, my team can write the then what if you can build that bot. And with that, we were able to pilot it in the engineering org. We saw the gap decrease from white and Asian employees to all of our underrepresented races and ethnicities by like 17%. Wow. And so we were like, we know we're onto something because it's creating a moment of pause at that moment that you're capturing subjectivity, Mm -hmm. that you're capturing potential bias. Mm -hmm. And it's saying, can you just think about what you're writing for a second? And the reason why I flagged some of the words were innocuous is that it's not necessarily wrong, but it's, are you critiquing the same areas for your employees who are white or who are Asian if they're in your majority group? And if you're not... How come? Is it because that's not an actual opportunity area for them? Or is it because you don't think about it as an area that you need to check for them because you have assumptions about where their strengths naturally are Mm -hmm. versus folks that you're less sure about or less familiar with? And I think that that's a critical piece as well is this sense of. If we look at the research, so there are all of these famous studies around if you just change the name on an application or the race, ethnicity on a submission. And there's one that I use all the time, and it's about a law review where they had just changed the ethnicity. Same name, same collegiate background, same year in school, et cetera. And what it showed was that for the person who was identified as black, that the reviewers found more errors in their work than for the person who was white. It didn't say that they found more errors than what existed. It just said that they found more errors. So to me, the takeaway is they were getting the assessment right on the black employee, but they weren't getting it right for the white one. Fascinating. And that's very different than saying every time I'm writing a review for a black employee, I'm dinging them on things that they shouldn't be dinged on. I want folks to orient themselves to, am I fairly and accurately assessing the same areas for employees in the same role? Yeah. And that's where I think a lot of companies are getting it wrong, is that based on the person, we're assessing them on different things.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just want to say that Wayfair is not alone in this, right? Because WorkHuman, we also do a lot of research on the language in our technology platforms. And we find differences as well by gender, by race, ethnicity. And similarly, we came up with a product called the Inclusion Advisor that just like you talked about, right? Like it includes that pause, take a minute to think about what you're writing. And here is why that may not come across. As intended. So that pause is really, really clutch. Okay. So I want to go back to something that you mentioned before. So you said something about diversity in terms of marketing strategy, but you sit in HR. I happen to know from talking to you that your role is broader than we sometimes see in a lot of other diversity roles that sit in HR. So can you talk about that a little bit
1: more? So one, I think, again, a byproduct of me being a Taurus, saying that (laughs) because my birthday was last week. And so I don't believe that you can just do DEI to impact the people you have working at an organization Mm -hmm. in terms of representation. If you want to build a culture of inclusion, you need to look at, well, what's our brand purpose? And when I read that, does it read inclusive when we are putting out commercials or marketing materials? Are we showing folks with different abilities? Do we show folks who might need assistive devices? Do we show the difference in the richness that exists? And it just makes good business sense Mm -hmm. by default, right? When you think about the purchase power of the segments of the population, that's changing. And every year we get closer to it looking different than it has in the past. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be mindful of that. But it's not just about trying to catch the dollar. It's about that consistency. In if this is who we are to our employees, we should be that same company to our customers. We should be that same company to the communities in which we live and work. Mm-hmm. And how do we bridge that consistency? So when I first started, I was a team of one. And so for me, it was, let's get the resources out there that we can, building toolkits and having them map to the DEI dashboards. And then it was, how many roadshows can I go on to attend the like all-hands meetings for some of our leaders in the organization who have team sizes of 100 plus, Mm -hmm. right? So that I'm getting out there, people know I exist, and they can reach out to me so that I'm not chasing everybody down. It works, but you'll also be busy for a very long time. But one of the first sessions that I delivered and everything I do is interactive was for our marketing team. And I kid you not, from that first session, which was probably within my first 90 days, if not sooner, that team started a DEI working group. And they were like, we want to write an inclusive marketing strategy. We don't want to burden you at every step of the way, but will you just check this as we're writing it? And I was like, so you want me to consult on what you're writing? Yes, I can do that for you. (laughs) But it's also taking the like, you know, marketing, this is your space. Mm -hmm. Now just think about applying a lens of inclusion and what would it look like to do your job on a daily basis? I love that. Everywhere that you're looking. And then we started getting folks in our storefront team who were like, well, when I look at stuff, we have segmentation that's global. And then it started naming other places. And I was like, well, what does global mean? If we're breaking down all of these, like, North American styles, then global Mm -hmm. just means not American? That's weird and they're like, well, when you say it like that, (laughs) but it's just getting people to think about those thoughts that probably had them pause for a second, but just not long enough to say, and I'm probably empowered to do something about this. So like after the murder of George Floyd, our engineering team reached out to me, had an entire brief on here's all the problematic language that is just natural in engineering coding. And here are suggested changes. And I think what they were looking for was permission for me. And I was like, I'm never going to tell you not to change language that you think is problematic. Master and slave commands. Yes, please, please, please please change change that. that. Right. Some of the language that I'm trying to still get out of anywhere I go, not even just at Wayfair, is saying like, well, this is the master deck for these presentations. And when I say to people like, ah, that's problematic because we're so used to that default because pattern recognition says we've always called it this, right? right? Then it's, well, what do we call it? And I'm like, well, how about the main, like the main bedroom, the main master bedroom. Correct. And people are like, Oh yeah, that works. Right. And so it's not that I know something inherently that you don't know. It's just, I've had more of those moments of pause that have allowed me to fill in possibilities of what else this could look or sound like. Yeah. And so we did that in our, brand purpose statement. I was part of a brain trust of people that they collected from across the company. But our statement now is that we are looking to be the place that can create that feeling of home. Mm -hmm. Right. And that is a specific set of language, not to say where you find home or defining what home is because that's going to be different based on your experience. And I want you to feel like Wayfair is the place for you from homelessness to home ownership. right? And so how can we be that so that anybody can create the feeling of home at Wayfair, no matter what home is for them? That's brilliant. Okay. So
0: I've got one last question for you. And I think that this is the appropriate tone to end our conversation on, right? So what I want to ask you about is sustainability. And that's something that you talk about a lot. So we know that this work is a marathon and not a sprint. So can you give companies some advice to make sure that they're creating lasting change as they try to evolve in this space and not just reacting to the latest thing?
1: So there's a formula that I I have in my head that immediately comes to mind when you ask this question. And it's, authenticity plus humility plus transparency with consistency. And I think that that really sums it up to me. And what I mean by that is, are you consistent in how transparent you are? Are you consistent with how you present yourself Mm -hmm. to these different segments of the population that you interact with? Potential employees, current employees, past employees, but also customers, anybody really. And do you have humility to know that you're going to get some things wrong. A lot of times where people fall down and what can make this work feel like a Sisyphean effort is the first time or maybe the second or third time an organization gets called out or feels like they're being called out. One, not pivoting to we're actually being called in and this presents an opportunity for us to do different and be better. Mm -hmm. But then what they tend to do is pull back on transparency because they're scared and because they don't want to be called out again. But that's not the thing to do. The thing to do is to admit we hear you. We understand that we might have gotten some of this wrong. Here's the inner conversation that we're having and either we're working towards a solution, or here's the solution that we think will be right, but we welcome that feedback. I think the second you close other folks out of the solutioning is the moment that you fail. And a lot of times in organizations, DEI bats cleanup right? It's, yeah. we're not going to involve you. We don't need, No, nope, we know what we're doing. And then all of a sudden a public mess happens. And then it's the DEI leader now says X, Y, and Z thing. And here's how we're involving them. And so that is also a huge no, no. I don't want me or my team to back cleanup. Mm-hmm. I want to be there to understand how are you thinking about this? Because before we even get to a statement that goes out or something, It's important to understand what goes into the thinking that then gets you to the output. And if you're not involving your DEI leader or your culture leader or whatever title this person has, DIB for belonging, if you're not involving them in the conversations up front, Mm -hmm. then you're really tokenizing their role. We could have a whole other podcast (laughs) on that.
0: Okay. All right.
1: And so I'm not in the business of having this role be tokenized. I'm also not in the business of speaking on behalf of all women, all black women, all queer women, all women with children. I'm in the business of sharing with you here's what I'm thinking, but also here are a few more folks that you can talk to if you feel like you need to pressure test that. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to stand with you if we get it wrong or if we get it right. There's this line from Kendrick Lamar where he says, (laughs) where he says, I want the credit if I'm losing or I'm winning. And that's the mindset that organizations need to have around this work. You're not always going to be winning in this space. In the times that you're losing, you're not always going to lose, but the second you pull back on transparency, the second you pull back on authenticity, that's when you're consistently getting it wrong.
0: That is the right note to end this conversation (laughs) on. Thank you so much. You've given me and I know our listeners a whole lot to think about. You encourage us to think a little differently in this space so that we can keep pushing And thank you so much for being here. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. I know you'll enjoy this as much as I did. If you like what you're hearing, rate, review, and subscribe to this show. For more stories, insights, and videos about how we work, follow us on all social channels at WorkHuman and subscribe to our newsletter in the show notes. This episode of How We Work was hosted by me, Dr. Misha N. Martin, and produced by Mike Lovett edited and mixed by Rob Valoy. We will see you with a new episode in a few
1: weeks.